Hello and welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tunzelman, a historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant to film and television. We've got a very exciting applicant to join the History Film Club today, Hannah. We've got Emma Holly-Jones. Emma is director and producer of the new film Mr Malcolm's List and this is your first feature. Welcome, Emma. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. Emma, Alex and I have had the good fortune of having a sneaky peek at Mr Malcolm's List before it's actually opened over here in the UK in the cinemas. But do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about the film and, and what they can expect when they go to see it? Yeah, so Miss Malcolm's List, I call it a mashup between a rom-com and a period drama. So I think listeners can expect to go and hopefully be made to laugh and hopefully be made to feel good. You know, I really feel like it's sort of, yes, it's set in 1818, but, you know, I think the tone of it is very much, you know, the Richard Curtis-esque rom-com. And this film's had a really interesting genesis, hasn't it? Um, Because previously you made a short film around the same subject. Can you tell us a bit about how the film kind of came into being, that whole process? Yeah, so I um, was just a struggling filmmaker, as we all are. And I was starting to think about developing something or just even attempting to pursue making a feature, which obviously at that moment in time, you know, you have no idea it's even a possibility. You just sort of go for it. And I was listening to a podcast hosted by The Blacklist, which was like a table reads podcast of scripts that they had identified on the on their website. And Mr. Malcolm's List was one of the, you know, scripts I had. And when I listened to it, I was very, very um, drawn to material. I thought it was kind of perfect for me. And like my sensibilities and what I was looking for. And, you know, I sort of set about trying to make this happen. It's been a seven year journey sort of from that moment. So, you know, I think also as a first time filmmaker, you realise that trying to get something period made as a first film is actually quite a challenge because it's expensive. So, you know, that's how the short film was born, because it was really a proof of concept that was, you know, designed and used to make the feature. So... It was almost like, you know, we had the feature script already. It was obviously based on a book that was written, I think, you know, 20 years prior that was actually unpublished. So it was an unpublished novel. So we had all these big tools. It was just a way of sort of creating a piece of work that we could use to pitch the bigger film. And, you know, we put the short film on YouTube and it did really well. And I think it was an integral part of getting this film made. And we put the short out in February 2019 and then went on the journey there of pitching the feature and trying to get it made and dodging a pandemic and God knows what else. But now we're here, you know. Seven years. And I'd like to just remind our listeners that it all started with listening to a podcast. Clearly an excellent (laughs) way to begin any filmmaking career or interest uh, with respect to the blacklist for that. That's where all the ideas are. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it's fascinating to hear about the film's development as well, because there's so many interesting and important things about it. One is that it's not an Austin adaptation and we see an awful lot of Regency period dramas that are Austin. It's not a story that people will have known before because you were drawing from an unpublished novel. And it has this kind of comedy element to it as well. But then also, you know, you've been very clear and innovative in the way in which you approach the casting for the film. So do you want to say a little bit about that as well? Yeah, um, the casting in particular, obviously, was something that I was 
you know, very adamant from day one that I wanted to find the best people, obviously, for the roles. That's like, you know, part of hopefully your job as a director and a producer. But I did see Hamilton around the time that I read the original script. And I was very, very inspired by what Lin-Manuel Miranda did. And it really made me challenge everything I had been taught at school, challenge what Hollywood had portrayed on screen prior to that. And me and Hannah have obviously spoken about this at length, you know, working on the film together, but it doesn't take much more than a couple of minutes in Google before you realise that the world was actually a lot more diverse back then than anybody in Hollywood or television has painted it to be. And it doesn't take long to find poetry and writing and paintings and all these things. So actually, that was enough for me. I was like, I think as a filmmaker, one, there is part of me that has no interest in whitewashing any story in any genre in any time period. I hope that every film I do below the line and above the line is as diverse within gender as it is race. So I think as a young filmmaker, like that existed in me regardless. I wanted the people I work with in the film uh, to represent the world I live in and the world I see. But it was wonderful, you know, journey of research uh, for me, which I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed. And there was enough information there for me to just run with this. And, you know, as Hannah knows, at a certain point, you kind of put all the history books down and we had many chats about it in prep when I was like, okay, that may be the historical answer, but in this world I'm building, I don't have to conform to X, Y, or Z because guess what? It's a movie, you know, it's not a documentary (laughs) and it's a piece of art, you know, and it's my piece of art. So why not make the world and the rules of the world rules that I'm proud of? And the cast is so good. They really were. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you have assembled quite a cast for this. I mean, (laughs) most people would be pretty thrilled in their first feature to have Frida Pinto, Zoe Mm. Ashton, these amazing, amazing performers. So how did you put that together? How did you get them on board? Well, casting director is obviously a huge integral part of that. So Tamara Lee Knockart, who is very different, was the only casting director I wanted to work with. And I hope I continue to work with her. She's brilliant. Um, She's a black British woman, so she was wonderful at keeping me to this decision because obviously, to be perfectly blunt, you get a lot of kickback over the financial value of the piece, like the risk of the piece, which is, you know, the systemic racism within the industry we're in. So she was incredible at really going, no, you know, stick to your guns. We want the majority of this to look like the world we live in. So she was really incredible and she introduced me to Chopin when we were making the short film and I knew within two minutes of me seeing Chopin that he was the perfect Malcolm. I think he represented to me great literary heroes. I felt like he had all the charm and all the charisma of a great period romantic lead and it was so instant for me. And then one of our producers, Laura Lewis, had a pre-existing relationship with Frida so that sort of brought Frida to the table and once the two of them sort of met on the short film you have to remember in the short film they barely speak they look at each other across the way and I think Frida flew in and out in 24 hours to do that like one or two shots she was in and they looked at each other across the way and the chemistry was already there so I was like you know 
they were Malcolm and Selena from day one. And obviously we went on quite a journey with Julia, you know, battling many a schedule and many a issue and COVID. But we landed with Zowie, who is just a comedic genius and just did such incredible work on this movie. So I really feel she was like the silver lining of this cast. And then Theo and Ollie, who were just, you know, very seasoned in period work, but just so much fun to give them comedy, you know, especially Theo, who's always the lead in, you know, this sort of stuff. I thought it was really fun to give him something. And I think he had a lot of fun, you know, putting a moustache on him and ugling him up a bit and like letting him be a bit grittier and a bit naughtier and a bit funny, you know, because he is as a human being, him and Ollie, they're absolutely hysterical in real life. And obviously Ollie does all these hugely large movies and television shows of these murdering dark husbands. And, you know, it was so much fun to show the world that side of him. And I've known Ollie since I was 17. And so is Tamara. We're all friends. So there was actually a huge element of friendships coming together uh, as we put this cast together. Divian and Shannad, who are the John and Molly, the footman and maid, that, you know, Shannad's a dear friend of mine. Her partner, Ross, was actually the photographer on the entire film, the short film, and then became the second unit director. So it was a real family in a lot of sense, you know. But Tamara, hugely integral in that journey. You know, casting directors are so important because it's such a big part of, like, you know, figuring out chemistry between certain relationships, who's going to work with who, and then not to mention the business side of it and scheduling and deals and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, there is such an integral part of a production and getting the chemistry of the production right. I mean, it's so inspiring to hear about those kind of friendships and relationships that you had as well with the cast and the other people helping with the film, because mm. I think the film has a real warmth to it, to the characters. There's a relaxed feeling to it, but it's also just so great that you can still make a film from scratch. I don't underestimate the challenge of that, of trying to pitch it and create it and pitch it as a period drama. But how fantastic for cinema that actually we can still have these independent films being made, period dramas made on different sorts of budgets and to see them come through. And now it's opening outside America as well. And I think that's brilliant for cinema for post-COVID times. So I hope everyone, you know, rushes to the cinema to see it. But just a bit more about the characters, because when I was watching it, they are so warm and relaxed and hearing you talk about your, you know, friendships with them helps us understand that. But of course that comes through the script and the directing as well. It's not entirely in the art of the acting, mm. but the characters as well, of course, capture our attention of the footman and the maid that you have in the background, which you don't often see. Well, we see them in a period drama, but they're never really given a character. Mm. And I thought you'd really work those characters beautifully to give them, you know, a feeling and identity and a place within within the scenes and is that from the novel as well or is that something that worked up through the script no so I think the process of to where we landed with the final script is obviously again in itself quite a big collaborative family affair obviously Susanna Lane who wrote the original novel and the original script and created these wonderful characters like handed me you know such a plethora of material to work with but I think, you know, even on the short film, it was really important for me to, as I said right at the beginning, lean into the 90s rom-com, specifically com, which I really wanted to inject into this because I think the book feels more like a romance and the movie feels more like a rom-com. And that was massively, you know, my vision for the film and my direction for the film. 
And I think, for example, like, you know, Divian and Shanad, no, they're not characters in the novel. They weren't characters in the original script. They improved and worked with me from day one on the set of the short film to create those characters out thinner. Divian is impeccably, incredibly good at observational comedy. And it was a lot of fun to have. For me, it was very much that sort of hark back to almost like Shakespeare plays, you know, when there's always like the grave diggers or the outside characters. And for me, it was a very subtle play on class that, you know, I wanted to embed within the film as well. But, you know, even when we got to the feature, I just gave Divian the script in prep and I just said, can you mark up on it, you know, where you think you can inject bits? So he deserves a lot of credit for a lot of those lines. Like the line in the dinner party scene, you know, where he breaks, I'm not going to say it because I don't want to spoil anything, but when he breaks up the dinner party scene, that was all him. I wanted to create a space where people really could contribute to their characters, especially a piece that hinges on their chemistry with each other and their emotional connection to the material. I believe that they should have their voice in it. And I was really happy during the prep process to tweak the script and work on the script and develop the script for them and for these characters and take these characters in new directions because they were written 20 years ago and I think they needed a little bringing into 2022 for an audience today. I think the girls in it, uh, the female characters in it, Julia and Selena, you know, their friendship was super important for us to really bring to the forefront, you know. As a feminist, I couldn't really make a movie that was all about women getting men. It, it had to be more level-pegged. Uh, I called it my love square in the end. <laughs> you know, they also needed their friendship to be as a bigger reward for the movie as the romantic relationships that come out of it. So it's been a huge development process. And I just feel very lucky to have been given the gift of Suzanne's original characters and original story and then being given the freedom to really make my mark on it. Now, as you say, you've been developing this for sort of seven years, a really long period, COVID happening, all of this stuff. And also during this time, kind of can't ignore the fact that Bridgerton came out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'd been developing this kind of early 19th century period drama, very diverse casting, elements of romance, elements of comedy. Did you think, when that came out, did you think, well, you know, everyone's always chasing a brilliant idea, right? But did you think, oh no, that's blown it? Or did you think, fantastic, there's an audience? What was your kind of take when that came out? I think when you're a first-time female filmmaker and Shondaland decides they're doing anything, it's a bit of a fear because... She's obviously one of the most brilliant established producers working. So, you know, you think, oh, God, well, is anyone actually going to want to make this now? And at that point, I've been working on it for three, three, four years. So I think there was a fear there that, like, maybe there wouldn't be a space for it. And also, I think they weren't the first either, and nor was I. I think it's really important. Everyone keeps, you know, comparing it to Bridgerton or just talking about Bridgerton. I'm like, no, there was Amrisante's belt. There was seasons of Outlander in like season one and two with diverse characters in. Like there's actually been going on a lot longer than people are giving, I think, it credit for just because Bridgerton became such a phenomena. And I don't think they can take credit for it either. But I think the reality is period dramas moving in this way is only a good thing. And I hope that, you know, more people do what we did, what they did, and it keeps becoming a more inclusive genre for an audience as well as for the actors who get to work in it 
and the crew who get to work on it. But no, I think that was the only real concern I had was like, I hope that someone still wants to finance this. But we were lucky that we did. And we made Malcolm's this for $6.8 million or something absolutely insanely low. So I think our budget was less than one episode of Bridgerton. So I'm actually just really, really, really proud of the team that worked on it because I feel like we've made something with the scale of the other material in this space with literally a percentage of the resources. So, you know, it's a huge testament to everybody who worked on it to compete against a show that big. And it's very beautiful. Some of the locations you shot at are just stunning. And actually visually, it gives it its own feel as well, because we're not just revisiting the same properties <laughs> I often visit yeah. near to London with period dramas. You've actually found other places that are so perfect for the story. But visually, I think for an audience, that's really compelling as well, because it takes you into your world, specifically your world. Mm, I agree. I mean, I think shooting an island was a real blessing for a number of reasons, but the reason you just stated is the biggest blessing. I mean, I think someone tweeted at me early on going, this is all the same places that they shot Bridgerton. And I was like, no, it ain't. And me and Shoppe both responded being like, no, this is Ireland. <laughs> you know, I think it's just funny because it is the same 10-year period. And obviously, it's the same Jane Austen period. So there's so many period dramas set in England at this time. And I think the assumption to shoot them in England is obviously natural for everyone. But it made more sense for us financially to shoot in Ireland. And thank God, because as you know, like you can watch The Crown and you can watch Bridgerton and you can watch Pride and Prejudice and you can see the same locations being redressed and reused. And don't get me wrong, England has some incredible buildings, incredible architecture, incredible shooting locations, but so does Ireland. And I hope more people go and explore what's there and choose to shoot there because there is some really brilliant, brilliant stuff. I mean, you know, you walk through the Royal Naval College at Greenwich and you're just like shoving people in Jane Austen costumes out of the way. I mean, you know, whereas actually I agree. I think it's one striking thing about the film is actually you wouldn't mistake a bit of it for Bridgerton. The look is totally different. Mm. Yeah, no, I think like the cinematography we studied was massively geared in the old classics. Mm -hmm. You know, I really wanted the frames to feel visually timeless so I was really concerned about it ever feeling too HD or too bright or too poppy. And I wanted it to sit in that sort of naturalistic pastoral sort of feeling. And I think Tony Miller did an incredible job achieving that. And, you know, and I think it works for Bridgerton. I think it worked for like Emma, you know, working titles Emma. I think that obviously they did the very bright colour poppy thing and that. And it was wonderful in that film. But for my film with this cast, I wanted to sort of heart back to some of the older ones. You know, I looked at Angie Sense and Sensibility and Barry Lyndon and Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice. We wanted that more film naturalistic feeling. Emma, at the History Film Club, we like to ask all our new applicants to choose a favourite historical film or TV production to add to our club library. So what have you found? I thought about this last night and I'm chose it because not only did I Easter egg a shot in the film to it, but I don't think anyone ever puts it in this category, potentially. I could be wrong, but it's The Sound of Music. Amazing. Oh, amazing. I love that film. It's a period drama and it's a period romance. It's a war film and it's a musical, but I think everyone just goes musical, you know? And actually, like... It's stunning. The costumes are stunning. The architecture is stunning. The cinematography is stunning. 
And the acting is incredible as well. But the gazebo at the end of the movie where Captain Von Trapp and Maria are singing to each other when they get together, that's obviously I, I when Malcolm and Selena meet in the orangery in the doorway. It's actually, Aww, it's actually a, nice. a nod to that shot. So if you put the two frames together, they're quite similar. And the colours and the lighting and the moonlight. And that was... For me, as a bit of a geek, uh, that was my one little like Easter egg to one of the biggest inspirations for me cinematically. So yeah, The Sound of Music. I'm delighted. Yeah, me too, because we love Easter eggs in films, but also, I mean, I love The Sound of Music. And um, my secret is that if I could be any character in a history film, it would be Baroness Schrader, because her costumes are phenomenal. She looks amazing, but she doesn't really have to do many lines. So you could have this just amazing day where you're just looking incredible all day, but you don't really have to work that hard and you don't have to sing, but you yeah. get to be in a musical. I just can't think of a better kind of role to have. So Yeah, yeah that white dress with the big flower on it. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. She's And her hair, she's incredible. No, it's a wonderful movie. I watch it all the time. I love it. It's one movie that they should never remake. Oh, God, no. It shouldn't be remade. I really hope no one remakes it. It should live as it is. <laughs> so your next project is a remake of The Sound <laughs> Well, you know what? If, if a studio chooses to do it, because I'm such a fan, I'd put myself forward because I'd be too scared that anyone else would yeah, picture yeah. it. There we go. But I still don't think it can be remade. It's a one-off. Well, if any producers are listening, they can find your details. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a situation that, Emma, I heard you on a podcast talking about the sound of music and how much you loved it. <laughs> then, yeah. By the way, you ought to go and make it. And <laughs> so, yeah. um, we also ask all of our guests a more difficult question about something they might like to ban from the History Film Club, a pet hate or, or anything. Is there something which we should keep outside of our doors? I find this very hard to answer because obviously... As a rule of thumb, as a filmmaker, I genuinely can't bring myself to bring down other filmmakers because I know how hard it is. So I can't, I honestly, I thought about it a lot and I was like, there's nothing I can really answer. But you know what? I know now from making a film in a period space, there's a lot of people in Twitter with a lot of very, very strong opinions on this. So I'll leave it to them. (laughs) You can just click on the Mr. Malcolm's list hashtag. And have a read of a few, you know, so I'll leave it to the internet to decide. That's fine. We have lots of existing pet hates, which we can just kind of adopt, can't we, Alex? So there's like, (laughs) my pet hate was always people walking too slowly in period dramas. It drives me mad. Like, that's one of the things I just want to speed everyone up a bit. Let's pretend we've got somewhere to go, shall we? (laughs) I thought it was more, um, more a film. Well, sometimes people do ban a film. So there has been a couple, but you don't have to. Yeah. But I got a very funny tweet the other day that I couldn't quite criticise. And someone was criticising in Malcolm's that the trees and the plants at the time of year wouldn't have grown. So like the rose garden, they're like, it's not the right time of year for that. And I was like, well, you know what? You're probably right. There's not much I can say to that. But at the same time, (laughs) like, you can't on a film budget start replanting trees and flowers. You know, you've got to pretend, (laughs) you know, wherever you are. And someone else tweeted that the bird sounds were not the right bird sounds for something in England. I find other people's pet hates very funny. I'm pretty impressed with these people. Can you imagine? Like, I mean... I know. Like, it's an incredible level of attention. To they're detail. watching very closely. I mean, they're watching they? so closely. I know. But you also do think, my God, I would love them to just try making a film and <laughs> yeah. just see 
yeah. how easy it will be to get absolutely every detail spot on. I know, the tree one really got me. I thought it was so funny yeah. and it's such a brilliant observation that only this person would never notice. And I was like, to be fair to you, maybe you have a business idea then. Maybe you can be a plant consultant on a film. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know. But for me, I think when making the film, a pet hate I had, as Hannah knows, was limiting women to where they could be. And I think that, and also the chaperoning, I think that's a pet hate. I know that that's historically accurate, but I actually started to throw that out the window, as Hannah knows, and she really supported me in doing that and encouraging me to make my own rules. So I'd say my pet hate in period film is limiting women to what they can do socially and who they can be around even though I'm probably sure that's quite controversial because I'm breaking all everyone's historical rules, but, you know. And now, Emma, everyone's going to write to me saying, Hannah, make sure chaperones are in the next period drama you work in because <laughs> everything was really great about Mr Malcolm's List, apart from I'm really upset that apparently <laughs> you allowed chaperones to go and, like, this is the greatest crime against history ever. I am going to get the letters now. <laughs> no, but you know what? You, you were amazing. You were like, this is how it would have been, but you also reminded me that it's my movie and it's for me to make decisions. And it's true. Like when you've got a scene with tension and chemistry and romance, it's not fun having a mum standing in the background. Like it ruins the scene, like, you know, and I think sometimes you have to think about the emotional journey rather than any detail of historical accuracy, because this movie is a fantasy and this world is a sort of a fantasy and it's an escapism. So as filmmakers, we may as well lean into that and make it the most enjoyable experience for an audience. Otherwise... We'd just be making documentaries. And as you know, that's not going to be a fun rom-com. And furthermore, historical fiction is always for the present. It's not for the past. I mean, they're not going to watch it, are they? (laughs) By the way, what was it, Hannah, you taught me about? You were talking to me about, like, or maybe it was Neil, I can't remember. But I think when we were talking to the accent coach as well about how, like, we can make an assumption of what the language sounded like and where the actors' voices should go, but we don't actually have any recordings And I was like, mind blown, because for a second there, you are like, yeah, we actually don't know what accents sounded like in 1818, because there was no physical recordings of them. And probably going posh is a good assumption, but we don't know. And I was like, yeah, it's funny. You know, we only know so much. We don't know everything. So we may as well continue to take the bits we love and, as you said, make it for a modern world. Well, we can bin assumptions and, you know, always make sure we make our worlds from scratch. So that sounds good to me, I think. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think on that basis and binning assumptions and making our world from scratch, it is our huge pleasure, Emma Holly-Jones, to welcome you into the History Film Club. Congratulations. You are now a full member. Thank you. Now, we do love to get all our members a drink from the club bar, which, of course, can make any drink historical or modern, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, whatever you choose. So what can we get you from the History Film Club bar? Um, I'll go alcohol because, you know, it's 9am on a Wednesday in Los Angeles, so why not? <laughs> I'll go with a gin and tonic. I love a Hendrix gin and tonic. Classic. With some cucumber to keep it really British. Oh my God, that sounds fabulous. Yes, we'll probably get three of those actually because <laughs> me and Hannah are going to want those too. <laughs> thank you very much. It'd be our pleasure. Well, thank you so much, Emma Holly-Jones. Uh, Miss Malcolm's List is out now for our listeners and... Thank you for listening. I'm Alex von Tunzelman. I'm Hannah Craig. And this has been the History Film Club. Bye.